0: Our passage for today comes from Philippians four, ten through twenty three. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be accredited to your account. I have received full payment, have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father... To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send greetings, especially those who belong to to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. It's like two people out there. Good Good morning. All right, there's a few more. So growing up in my house... My mom was really serious about thank you notes. A week or so after Christmas, you could expect on our kitchen table a list with names of uh, people you had received gifts from, a list of those gifts, and a stack of thank you cards. And it was a good thing to do. I, I want to do, I wish I did that more with my kids. I, parents, it's it's a good idea to send thank you notes. Let me just say that. But as I was thinking about this this week, the challenge I had as a kid was trying to say thank you for something, quite frankly, you weren't that thankful for. It's not hard to say to your grandma that you appreciate the $25 check you got that you're going to spend for video games. And it's another thing to say thank you for that sweater, right? that you didn't really want, that you didn't ask for, and that you're probably never going to wear. You. You have this delicate task of showing appreciation for that gift you had received, at the same time trying to be honest. I think that was not always easy to do. Paul ends his... So we come to the end of the letter to the Philippians today, and we essentially have a thank you note. Sort of. Paul's writing a thank you note that maybe, like, you wanted or I wanted to write as a kid, but your mom would never let you write that. i rejoice... For the gifts you sent with Epaphroditus that I didn't really need. It was so good of you to remember me and help me out with these gifts that I never sought in the first place. It sounds like the worst thank you note ever. As soon as Paul expresses some kind of gratitude to the Philippians for the gift, he immediately then qualifies it. It's like Paul's mom never taught him how to write a proper thank you note. But Paul has even a more delicate task than I did as a 10-year-old kid. Paul's got to do two things at once in this note. One, he's got, he needs to show genuine appreciation for the financial support he's received from the church in Philippi. Okay, He needs to do that. But two, he needs to make it clear that, the Philippians, that to the Philippians that his ministry is not dependent on their gifts and that it's not motivated by their gifts. In other words, Paul has to thank him without thanking them. He has to write a thankless thank you note. And it's interesting, if you look at this passage, the word thank you is not in it. Like my heading, which is not part of the biblical text, says a thank you, but the word thank you is never in it. And to understand, we're going to have to go into Paul's world. There's different conventions, there's different social conventions, there's different norms in Paul's world. And that presented a challenge to Paul. So here's one of the challenges he had. At the time, there was philosophers and teachers who would go from place to place selling their ideas. So they would gather these people around them. They would tell them ideas, and they expected to receive financial support from them. So essentially, their philosophy, their ideas were for sale. This summer, we were uh, in Boulder, Colorado, and we were walking around like near this downtown strip and we came upon a like a huge crowd gathered around a street performer, and he was this guy on stilts, and this guy was genuinely super talented. He, and his final trick was uh, juggling fire on the stilts, like not easy to do. Okay, and the whole time, like as this crowd gathers around, and you're watching, you're thinking, this is amazing, and there's no way this is free. Like, there's no way this guy is out here doing this from the goodness of our heart. And sure enough, when he got done with that big final trick, a not so subtle message came out. It's time to pay up. Right. He put the hat out, but it wasn't like, hey, you want to give It was like it's time to give. And Paul needs to to make it clear. He's not a street performer. He's not some like huckster of the gospel about Jesus Christ. So as, as long they can get the news about Jesus as long as Paul gets his cap filled up. It's not that Paul doesn't think he has the right to financial support. He makes this clear in for example the letter to the Corinthians that he has the right to financial support. But he make he's got to make it clear that he is spreading the good news about Jesus Christ for free. It's not that this message of his is not tied to money, it's not tied it's not being influenced by money. And so that's the first thing he's got to navigate around. But Paul also lived in a world where there were these very complex patron-client relationships. So briefly, like these patrons, these benefactors, these were people with money, and they would invest them in these clients. So they would give them money, they would invest them, and, and as we would say now, like there's always some strings attached, right? Those gifts from the patron to the client came with expectations. And the client was expected to reciprocate that gift to give something back in return. Or like one of the things they could do was they could give a gift back or they could just acknowledge that they are indebted to that patron. That was a way, remember we're in honor-shame culture. And one way to give honor to that uh, patron was to just acknowledge your indebtedness. And so Paul's got to make it clear to the church in Philippi, this is not the kind of relationship that he has with them. Paul's not the client and they're not the patron. Because that that relationship is not going to work for Paul. Paul's got to hold on to his independence. Like you know that old adage, "Don't fight that, don't bite the hand that feeds you." Like there's this, feeling, like if I'm feeding you, if I'm giving you money, you better be careful what you say to me. Like that's not going to work for Paul. So Paul's going to have to, he's going to have to make it clear he appreciates these funds, but he is not beholden to the Philippians. So think as we go through this thank you, thankless thank you note. Like keep this in mind. Paul's not being rude, okay? He's trying to delicately walk this line of showing appreciation on the one hand, but also navigating these social conventions. So if um, you've got your Bibles open, we're in Philippians 4:10. 4. Philippians 4.10. It's the last passage in this letter we've been at for the last couple of months. He, he uses this word rejoice again. We've seen this letter, this word time and time again. This is our final. Time I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. For some reason, we're not told why. There's been this period of time where there's been this silence between the Philippians and Paul. And Paul started to wonder, I wonder if they've forgotten about me. I wonder if they've forgotten about me. But then one day, Epaphroditus showed up. And when Epaphroditus showed up at prison, Paul knew that the Philippians had not forgotten. They had renewed their concern for him. This Greek word for renewed is really, it's not captured in English, it's poetic language. It's the word used to describe when trees and flowers burst into bloom again. In 2014, I was living in northern Illinois, and that was the the winter of the polar vortex. You might remember that winter. I I put the the strawberries to bed with some snow in late November, early December, and mulched them. Uh, When I was tapping the maple trees in March, there was uh, still a lot of snow on the ground that winter. It was a long, hard winter in northern Illinois. And I I struggled to keep uh, water tanks from freezing that were uh, water for the cattle. I'd go out to the shed, it'd be negative 10 degrees, and we'd got another... Snow, snowstorm that would come and I'd go out to our old, little old Ford 1520 and I'd turn that little glow plug and just hope that diesel engine turned over it was cold there was a stretch where for I think it was a week it never got above zero degrees and that winter almost broke my poor Texan wife but then spring came And the buds and the maples around our our house, they burst into bloom. And the daffodils on the trail up the hill, they finally emerged from that soil that had finally thawed out. And there was this feeling that washed over me and us. This feeling, I think you know, that only comes in spring when the sunshine hits you after a hard winter and it feels so good you want to cry. That's the feeling that I think washed over Paul when he saw Epaphroditus walk through that door. In the dead of winter, locked up in his prisons, flowers had burst forth in bloom, and Paul rejoiced greatly. The Philippians had not forgotten him. Maybe you can remember a time in your life when you were in the dead of winter. You were alone, you were overwhelmed with darkness, and a brother Or a sister showed up at your door, or maybe they showed up at the hospital, and it was like flowers bursting into bloom, and it made you want to cry. Paul is deeply grateful for the the renewed concern of the Philippians. But look, just as quickly as he gives this beautiful poetic description of his joy, he has to qualify it. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul very specifically uses this word content that was used by the Stoic philosophers at the time, and the word meant independent or self-sufficient. So Paul's drawing on the the, the language of the people, they would know this, and he's saying, he's in some ways comparing himself to a wise Stoic. And for a Stoic at the time, the key, the secret to being content was being indifferent to your surroundings. So you might be super uncomfortable. You might be experiencing physical pain. You might be experiencing some kind of deprivation. You might have experienced some kind of humiliation or failure. But you could still be content because your contentment wasn't contingent on outward circumstances and surroundings. You can deal with hunger and cold. You can deal with isolation and failure because through discipline, through training as a Stoic, you have developed the inner resources to face whatever situation comes to you. And that's what Paul says. I know what it's like to be in need. I also know what it's like to have plenty. And we should probably point out here, you know, we hear these words need and plenty, and immediately we start to think, okay, what is need and plenty for me? Paul is an artisan tent maker, okay, in the first century. Need and plenty means something completely different to Paul than us. Need, like Need and plenty are like, if I have plenty, I get to fly to Disney World. If I have need, I get to drive to Disney World. Okay? That's a lot of times how we think about it. For Paul, plenty, as an artisan tent maker, he had enough to eat and he had clothes on his back. That's plenty. You can imagine kind of what need he is then. He doesn't have food in his belly. He doesn't have proper clothing. And yet Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Where the living and plenty are in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I've learned the secrets. You know, it's interesting. What Paul is more literally saying is, I have been ushered into mysteries. Doesn't that sound awesome? Like I've been ushered into mysteries. He's using this language to describe initiatory rites that a person would go through to enter into an ancient mystery religion. But here's what I want you to notice. Paul is not saying, I read some book on how to be happy, on how to be content, and that's where I learned the secret. I don't know about you, but like when I'm like looking at the newspaper or a, uh, a magazine, I'll see it, a headline that says, The Secret to Being Happy. And like I'm a sucker for it. I want to know what the secret to being happy is. And so I look at it, and you know a lot of times it's pretty good advice. Right, like you need to be grateful. You need to write down three things you're grateful. Or relationships are the key to happiness. Or exercise is the key to happiness. They're not. It's not usually bad advice. It's often those shortcuts. It promises a big payoff. You're going to be happy, and it's really not going to take that much effort. So why wouldn't you do this? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying I've been schooled. I've been. I've gone through trial by fire. I have been initiated. And I've, been, I've emerged with the secret on how to be content in every situation. and Here it is. You ready? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And probably some of Paul's most famous words. But often when we hear those words, we hear them out of context. These words are not meant for a motivational poster. They're not meant for a football locker room. Paul is not saying, hey, you can do anything you want because Jesus gives you the power. This also isn't like the modern equivalent of telling your kid like they can be whatever they want if they put their mind to. It. Look again. Look again closely. If you've got your Bible, look again what it says in verse 13. This is super important. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. If you're like me, you grew up probably the version of the NIV or whatever version. You probably learned it. I can do all things. And that's not a bad translation. That's probably a better, more literal translation. But what you miss, and I think the NIV gets it right here, is Paul's not talking about everything. He's talking about this. He's talking about, he's saying, I can do all this. Meaning I could, all the situations I just told you about, being in need, having plenty, being hungry, being well-fed, I can do all of this. I can endure all this through him who gives me strength. Here's what, here's what Paul's saying. Here's what I've learned through all of this. No matter what happens, I can be faithful to my calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I can hold on to my faith in Jesus and what he's called me to do no matter what. That's different than saying, I can do whatever. So, how does Paul do it? What's his, like what's the superpower that Paul has? According to Paul, the secret contentment is not, like the Stoics say, found in independence and self sufficiency but rather, paradoxically, independence in Christ-sufficiency. Paul's secret is not that he has a superpower. It's that he's plugged into the ultimate source of power, Jesus Christ. And because of that power, that, because that power has been infused into Paul, he has learned that no matter what happens, no matter what life throws at him, he can endure it in his calling as an apostle. Paul doesn't say, you know, I found Jesus... And then it was smooth sailing from there. Paul says, I found Jesus and then the rain hit. And then the winds blew. And they beat against me. And wave after wave of hardship came over me. Imprisonment and hunger and deprivation and shipwrecks. People attacking me. Beatings. And I endured. Paul endured because he held fast to Jesus' call in his life. Not because Paul was like this tough guy or he was this stoic. Or he was a superhero. Not because Paul had learned to be indifferent to pain, but because he had plugged into a power bigger and greater than himself. As followers of Jesus, we're not promised that life is always going to tilt to the plenty and away from the want side of things. We'd like that. That's not what we're promised. What we're promised is when the want comes, when the hunger comes, when the humiliation comes, when the pain comes in our journey as disciples of Jesus, when that call for the doctor's office comes that you're dreading. When financial hardship comes. When memories of trauma come back. When heartaches of life come. When you lose someone you love and you think, I cannot do this. You're right. You can't do it. And you remind yourself, though, you have plugged in to a source of power that is so much bigger than you as a follower of Jesus. And that power is Jesus Christ. Christ. And part of that power that you plug into is the recognition that your ultimate source of joy and worth and meaning is not tied to external circumstances, but to Jesus Christ, something no storm can take away. Verse 14. Paul now moves back to expressing gratitude. We've got this movement. He's going to express gratitude. He's going to qualify. He's going to express gratitude. And then he's going to qualify. Here we go again. Yet, yeah, it was good of you to share my troubles. Right from the beginning of their acquaintance with the gospel, uh, this good news that Paul's been spreading about this uh, a savior king named Jesus, the church in Philippi has joined with him in this mission. Okay? He, he's so grateful for that. But look, he's gonna qualify it again. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. Again, this like this sounds kind of strange. It sounds Paul moves from gushing about the Philippians, how good it was for them to share the troubles, and then he's got this like very formal language. He sounds like like somebody like a who's not used to showing their emotions. Like in this brief moment. They, they, like, make themselves vulnerable, and they, they open themselves up, and then they suddenly catch themselves. Say, no, no not that I needed it. Right? That's what it kind of sounds like. And it does sound a bit cold and calculating, because Paul's actually using accounting language here. He's using banking language, credits and payments and accounts. When Paul says, I've, I've received full payment, he's using a technical term here from the business world for a receipt. Right here's your receipt for the goods and goods and uh, services delivered to me. So instead of printing off like a a, a receipt on a cash register or something like that, he's going to give him a receipt with his words. You have paid in full. Again, st- like strange, right? A really weird thank you note. That all of a sudden this this warmth that we've talked about has shifted into the language of business partnership. But here's what we need to see. The fact that Paul is even receiving these funds from the Philippians is unusual. Because usually in other letters, Paul will not take funds from other churches. He does not want to put himself where he is beheld them to their uh, their wishes that come with uh, the money. But he does accept financial assistance from the Philippians. We don't know why. It might have been that the Philippians had less money, so he was less worried about uh, them using money as a power to manipulate him. We don't know but he will accept these funds from the Philippians. That's that's a that's a step right there. That's a way he's honored them. He's using this business language because, because Paul has partnered with this church in Philippi. In other words, they are not his patron and he's not their client. They are partners. They are in this together. If you remember way back in the beginning of this letter, Paul actually said he spoke about this partnership that they had in the gospel. Now at the end of the letter he's returning to this. He's got this joy that the Philippians have partnered with him in this venture of spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. That the church in Philippi is stuck with him thick and thin. They are like a faithful partner. And Paul is deeply grateful for their support. But Paul wants the Philippians to see this is bigger than just me and you. This is bigger than a financial gift that you just gave to me. You're not my patron and I'm not your client. We're partners. And that gift that you're giving, that gift is to God. So it's interesting. He goes from business language to this Old Testament sacrificial language of now this offering that you make, it's rising up to God like a fragrant offering. It's pleasing to God. If you're a member here at Midway, here's my question for you this morning Are you a patron of the gospel? Are you a consumer of the gospel? Or are you a partner? In the gospel, are you a patron, a consumer, or a partner? What do I mean? Well, it's Thanksgiving week, so let's use Thanksgiving dinner to try to understand this. If you are a patron of Thanksgiving dinner, you are glad to pay for a Thanksgiving feast the turkey, the mashed potatoes, the pie. Maybe you're glad to pay the Dutch house or somebody else to cook you up a Thanksgiving feast. Who's got time to cook Thanksgiving? Who wants to get their hands dirty in the kitchen when you could pay someone to do it? And because you're foot in the bill, guess what? If that turkey's dry, those mashed potatoes are lumpy, you are entitled to let them know. You are a patron of the Thanksgiving dinner. If you're a patron of the gospel, you are you might be glad to invest your financial resources in the church. You are being glad to invest your resources in the mission. But getting into the thick of things, getting into the kitchen, doing the work, getting your hands dirty, that's not your thing. Who's got time for that? It's better to pay someone else to do that. You are a patron of the gospel. What about if you're a consumer of a Thanksgiving meal? You're like that person who shows up five minutes before the whole meal goes out on the table. What, how convenient is that? Everything's done. Everything's done. The feast is on the table, and you are glad to consume that Thanksgiving feast. You are glad to delight in that nourishment and that joy of eating. As soon as it's time for dishes, you are gone. You are a consumer of Thanksgiving meal. If you're just a consumer of the gospel, you're glad to show up on Sunday and eat. You're glad to feed on what is served up, and you find nourishment in that. But you're not interested in helping cook or wash dishes or contribute in some way. You are a consumer of the gospel. But you can also be a partner in the Thanksgiving meal. When you are a partner in Thanksgiving meal, you are a participant in that meal. You are in the kitchen making pies and casseroles. Or maybe, okay, you're not a cook. Pastor Matthew, I'm not a cook. Okay. How are you contributing to that meal? Are you washing dishes Are you setting the table? Are you carving the turkey? Are you folding napkins? Are you hanging up somebody's coat? Are you doing what you can to make sure they feel like they're at home? You are contributing to that feast. You're not just a patron of Thanksgiving. You're not just a consumer of Thanksgiving. You are a partner in the Thanksgiving feast. And when you sit down as a partner in the Thanksgiving feast, there's an amazing fragrance that rises up from that table from that turkey. And it is pleasing to everyone. Because you were part of that. If you're a partner in the gospel, you are using your financial resources to support the church. And you are nourished, I hope, by God's word on Sunday morning, by the worship service, by all these things that happen in our assembly. You show up and you're fed. But you're not just a patron. You're not just a consumer. You are a partner in the gospel because you are in the action you are investing your resources, your finances, your time, your energy, your gifts, your prayers into this partnership. A partnership with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a if you're not a member here, let me just be totally frank with you for a second. Joining in partnership with other believers is not the easiest thing to do. It's a commitment. Sometimes it gets messy, like the conversation over Thanksgiving dinner. And sometimes, here's also what happens. You put a lot of sweat and sacrifice into that meal, and you don't always feel appreciated. It's not easy. But it is so much more satisfying. It is so much more joyful and rich to be in the action than sitting on the sidelines. There is a deep joy in giving your life to something bigger than yourself. And at the moments when you feel underappreciated, which you inevitably will when you invest yourself in a partnership, you remember that sacrifice is for God. That sacrifice is rising up and is pleasing to God, even if the other people don't recognize it. Somebody out there is thinking, but I'm tired. I get it. The call is not to do what you did 30 years ago. You may not be the one cooking the turkey in the kitchen, but you have a role to play, and we need you in this congregation. Somebody out there is thinking, I don't even know what I have to offer this meal. You have gifts and abilities that you probably aren't even aware of. And I am excited as we launch these service teams to find out new gifts and new abilities. We need you. Partner with us. The church in Philippi wasn't a patron of the gospel, and it wasn't a consumer of the gospel. It was a partner in the gospel. Your invitation today is to be a partner in the gospel. Don't, don't, I I mean this seriously, don't walk away from this sermon thinking it's about a Thanksgiving meal, thinking it's about potatoes or turkey. That's not what this sermon's about. If you think this sermon's about a Thanksgiving meal, you've missed it. This is about you joining with your fellow brothers and sisters in a community centered around the risen Lord Jesus, empowered by his spirit, as partners in the gospel. That the good news about our Lord Jesus might go forth, that God's kingdom might come to Northeast Ohio as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the gifts you've given to this body, this local expression of the church of Christ. Thank you for all that you have blessed us with resources and gifts, wisdom, energy. We want to be partners in the gospel. We want to join with you in what you are doing and being partners in the gospel. We want to be faithful to where you're calling us. And so I pray, Lord, as we move into this season of figuring out new ways that we can partner together as brothers and sisters for the good of of your church and the advancement of the gospel, that you would be faithful to us and guide us and give us discernment and show us the way. ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.